This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I was watching TV, flipping the channels, and a, sh- a movie came on. This happens. I'm sure this happens to you. It happens to me occasionally. You're flipping the channels, and a movie comes on, and you had no intention of stopping. You had no intention of watching any of it. You had no intention of spending any of your time on that movie. But for whatever reason, that movie is one of your guilty pleasure movies. It comes on and somehow your finger pops itself off the channel button. And the next thing you know, you have locked yourself up and have spent the last hour watching it. Now for me, and it's kind of embarrassing, this is, this is part of the reason why it's a guilty pleasure. Because a guilty pleasure movie is not one that is like a spectacular Hollywood, one of the greats of all time. Like one of my, one of the movies that I will find myself stumbling on and always sticking with is the Shawshank Redemption. But that's not a guilty pleasure because that's one of the best movies ever made. Same thing with Saving Private Ryan. If I come across Saving Private Ryan for whatever reason, I will always stop on there. I was trying to think what other movies fall into that of category of the, the really great Hollywood movies. Like, everybody agrees that was a great movie, so you can't really call it a guilty pleasure because it's, it's just a pleasure. Princess Bride would be one you'd flip the channels and you'd find. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, even. I don't know if that's considered a classic, but it's a good movie. But I'm flipping channels yesterday or the day before, and I come across this ridiculous movie that I've now probably seen 25 times because for whatever reason, it just hits the right spot with me. I don't know why. I don't understand. But it was a, it was a Tom Hanks movie called That Thing You Do. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a, saw, it's a show, it's a movie about a band that gets together in like the 1960s. They come up with a hit song and suddenly they're traveling on the road and doing all this stuff. There is absolutely nothing intellectual about it. There is very, it's not even considered a great movie. Just for whatever reason, this movie comes on TV and I end up watching it. I don't know why. For whatever reason, this one Office Space, there's another one. Dumb and Dumber, definitely not a classic. But what are you, what's your guilty pleasure movie? Ben, what is your, if there is a movie, if you're flipping channels and there is a movie that comes on that's not considered a Hollywood classic, that is just one of those movies that for whatever reason it works for you, what would that movie be? The Matrix. The Matrix. Regardless, you've seen it a hundred times now, you're going to you're gonna stop and you're going to watch it. Yeah, I mean, it's a great set of movies. Now, would, would The Matrix be considered better than just a guilty pleasure? Depending on which one. Because, I mean, there's the first one, which I really enjoy, and then slowly they get worse in quality, in my opinion. It is, uh, I'd love to know what, uh, what those of you out there, oh, John just uh, tweeted in, the music in that thing you do is amazing. See, this is the thing. It's not really a Hollywood classic. It really isn't. Liv Tyler is in it. She's, I mean, she's a good actress. There's a bunch of good actors in it. Tom Hanks is in it. But whatever, whatever is going on, if I happen to flip by and that thing you do comes on TV, I am stuck for however long. Now, thankfully, or not thankfully, it's only like an hour and a half. When Saving Private Ryan comes on, I'm doomed. Now, that's a classic. 
But what is the what is the movie? Oh, John just retweeted it as well. Talented Mr. Ripley is his. Ta- I'm trying to remember Talented Mr. Ripley. I don't know if I've seen Talented Mr. Ripley. Maybe I'm going to have to find that one. Maybe I'm going to have to go look that one up. 905-645-3221, star 9900. we got a few minutes here. What is the guilty pleasure movie? You're not necessarily proud of this. This is not one that Hollywood is going to be putting up on their wall of fame. But when it comes on TV, when you happen to stumble on it, what is the movie that you absolutely find yourself watching every time? This afternoon, as I was thinking about this, I, I, I wrote down about three or four that just, and I said to you that, that The Office is another one, which is, or sorry, Office Space, which is just mindless. Same with Dumb and Dumber, although Dumb and Dumber is, you know, uh, The Rookie. Have you ever seen The Rookie? The Rookie is a Walt Disney baseball movie. It's based on a true story. It's based on a story of a guy who was a, a formerly a baseball player, blew out his arm, became a high school teacher and coach in Florida. And then when he was throwing batting practice to his high school team, they started to notice that he was like just blasting the ball past them. And they said, you got to go for one of those open tryouts. And he said, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. But they forced him to. And turns out, true story, he ends up making the Tampa Bay Rays and pitching in the major leagues. It's a great story. He actually came, the guy who was the star, or the uh, the focus of that movie, the subject of the movie, came and spoke at the B'nai B'rith dinner here in Hamilton one year. It's one of the one of those movies that you you get choked up every time you watch it when he calls when he's finally made it to the big leagues, and he calls home to tell his wife that he's made it after all these years. The rookie is one of them, and one other one that I'm not proud of. I am not proud of this being a guilty pleasure movie, but I do find myself, and it's on the TV all the time, which is wasting a lot of my time. Is Anchorman? If the legend of Ron Burgundy is on. I'm kind of doomed. I'll I'll stop there and I'll watch for, for a long time. What is yours though? What is your guilty pleasure movie? Ben's was The Matrix. John's was Talented Mr. Ripley. John on Twitter. What is yours? What is the... Sean just writes in Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one. And he says the Disney version of Robin Hood, the animal, the animated one, the early, early... See, this is exactly what we're talking about. You may not want to go out into high society and proclaim to people that this, that's why it's a guilty pleasure. You may not want to tell everybody, this is the movie that I watch if I am going to, but that's exactly what this is. See, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, that's my version <laughs> of the Robin Hood story that is my guilty pleasure. For yes, that. it's the, the whole idea of the guilty pleasure is that it is something you would not necessarily be proud to tell people, but you just cannot help yourself. I was talking to someone today who said Spinal Tap, and uh, look, I agree, although I think that Spinal Tap rises to the level of being a classic. You don't have to have that as a guilty pleasure. If you've never seen Spinal Tap, run, don't walk to find it and watch it. It is one of the funniest movies ever made, ever. It's about a three-person rock band with... with um, Michael McKeon and Harry Shearer and Christopher Guest, and they are three members of Britain's loudest heavy metal band trying to make a comeback, and they are socially, emotionally, in every way, retarded in the proper use of the word. They are just, they are, they are simpletons of the highest order that think they are really 
affecting the world in a positive way, and it is just hilarious. But that is, um, that's mine. I cannot avoid when it's on. I cannot avoid watching that thing you do. Do you have any of that music lined up, Ben? People may have seen this movie before. I'm assuming some other people have seen this movie at one time or another. Funny thing was, I was going to talk about this last night. Then, of course, Roy Halladay passed away. It didn't really fit in with that show at all. And then we're coming out of a commercial break, and Ben plays this. See, this is, this is the scene where they've got this really slow ballad and all of a sudden they get a new drummer and they're playing at a dance and he speeds it up. The drummer goes bananas and they all have to keep up and then the kids in the dance hall all love it and it goes on to be a hit record and they become famous. It's a great part. Who did you say called in with Black Hawk Down? Karen. Did. Karen. I saw Black Hawk Down a long, long time ago. That See, that's a, that, is, that would be a guilty pleasure because it's really, really violent. It's really, now again, based on a true story. It's based on the American Marines, Blackhawks, helicopter going down in Mogadishu and having to fight their way to to safety, some of them. Yeah, really, really violent movie. But let me know, Radley at 900chml.com, if you have a guilty pleasure movie. I'd love to know what it is because I will end up going and trying to watch it to see if it becomes a new one. I need some new Guilty pleasures. I just finished, my wife and I just finished watching season two of Stranger Things. We've now blown through that. So now I'm looking for something. And I don't want to watch that thing you do again. It's an accidental thing that you end up with. So I need some good suggestions of real guilty pleasure movies. That's why I'm glad that uh, Kurt called in. He said Uncle Buck. Have you seen that Uncle movie? Buck with John Candy, of course. Anything with John Candy would be a guilty pleasure movie. The other day we had a quiz question on about planes, trains, and automobiles. Any John Candy movie. The Great Outdoors. There's another one that I will watch, especially when they come home from the restaurant after eating the big 96er. The 96-ounce steak, and they get home and the garbage pail is overrun by maggots. That's, see, they're not exactly highbrow entertainment, but it is guilty pleasure stuff. Send me an email, radley at 900chml.com, or tweet me. At Radley at the spec, if you uh, if you want to do it that way. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML. Earlier this week, in a very interesting story reported on by my colleague at the Spectator, Drew Edwards, covers the Tie Cats. A number of players anonymously suggesting that if they were to give their names, it could affect their standing either with the team or affect their role with the team or whatever else. A number of players anonymously said they don't want to play for Ken Austin. They don't want Ken Austin to be back as general manager, which led to an interesting response. Of course, fans were fascinated by this because it's a little peek into the inner workings of the dressing room. But Bob Young, who is the owner of the team, obviously the caretaker, rose to the defense of his former head coach, uh, now his general manager. And on Twitter, he first tweeted, this is just sad. A cowardly Ticat player, maybe two, complain anonymously to a naive journalist about a former coach. Where is the love for a coach who took Ticats or took the Ticats to Grey Cup 
twice in four seasons. With the exception of last year or so, Kent Austin was arguably most successful head coach in CFL history. Good coach, better person. Well, well, well. What an interesting conundrum we have here. Let me bring in our buddy Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, who did a very nice job, by the way, last night. I must commend you, sir, on your Roy Halliday coverage. Excellent job. Um, what do you make about this whole thing going on down in Ticatville? Hmm. Um, as this, uh, when the book closed and that final whistle blew uh, after, I guess it was a 33 to nothing victory. I think Montreal, so, yes. I thought to myself, and I think I even said it out loud to the couple of other media members that were around me, that this is going to be one of the most interesting off-seasons we have had here. And we've had some interesting ones, you know, of teams that have been losing teams or winning teams and things that needed to be done. Bankrupt teams. Bankrupt teams, absolutely. But this one is going to be very interesting because of certainly what happened um, on the field in the early part of the season how the team rebounded this year. So you have a personnel issue on the field, but you also have personnel issues off the field. And that extends not only just to the coaching staff, but to upper management as well, too. Um, and even a guy by the name of Johnny Menzel. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, you know, I, can't, I can't help but throw that in the mix, too, right? Because there's so much to discuss and what may happen. So, you know, I, I don't know, Scott. I think this is a wait-and-see because there are certain dates for certain things that ha- need to happen in terms of free agency, uh, in terms of when coaches' contracts expire. Um, and I think you need to start at the top and get your, your head coach before you do anything. So, I mean, all alerts on the Ticats right now. The tweets that were sent out, though, after this story first ran uh, from Bob Young, from the owner of the team, particularly the first one, uh, this is just sad. A cowardly Ticat player, maybe to complain anonymously to a naive journalist about a former coach. When you read that tweet, what did you think about that? Didn't sit well with me. Which part? The whole thing. Um, for uh, Here's my thinking. For Bob Young, who I have tremendous respect for, and what he has done in the city of Hamilton and the revival of the Tiger Cats, you know, many years ago, and continues to support that team through, you know, the fact that it really hasn't won a great cup in his entire time he's owned the team, is that why would an owner respond on Twitter? I mean, this is like Donald Trump to me responding to someone on Twitter. Like, you're, you're, you should be well beyond this. People are go- your fans are going to have opinions, plus and minus. And I know the world was sort And of your coming. players. Your players are going to have opinions. Players. Yes. You know, like, so every time that, you know, Jeremiah Masoli or, you know, if Brandon Banks drops a touchdown pass, are you going to come to the defense of your player on Twitter? I mean, Twitter's just a sounding board. And why the owner of the team felt the need to... And I know he's, he, his, thought, his thought process is I need to defend my, my, my president of VP. You know, like, you just don't do that. And, and based on all the other things that happened throughout the season, the art brows, I could go on and on. You know what? This is the year you've got to kind of suck it up. So I was a little disappointed that, that, the, that the caretaker took care of that as well, too. The other aspect of that, too, is that, you know, like, Sorry? Well, no, calling calling some of the players, whoever wants to speak out, cowardly. I don't know well, how that's going to play well, in the locker room. Well, I'm going to go to the other side as a media, a member of the media. And, like, you know, I think I put this on my Twitter account that, you know, Drew works at a different, you know, media outlet than I do, 
you know, here in, in town. Uh, and so there's, you know, I guess some measure of competition, I guess, even though it's like, you know, print and television. And you mean, you know, you work with the man. He's as credible as ever. His job is to cover the Tiger Cats. And if these are opinions that have been offered to him, um, of course he's not going to reveal his sources. Who on earth would do that? So if he went to print with that, so be it. And I can only speak for myself. Now I don't, as I said on the TV on, on the news, I don't know if some of the players I talked to, you know, over the last six months, um, are the same that he talked to. But I know I have heard similar opinions. And yeah. you know what? And Steve Milton has said he heard the same. And the time the team's play-by-play guy has tweeted out that he's heard the same. And so when I when I see this tweet, then, so you say it. Three other guys say we got four people who cover the team regularly all say they've heard these things. And the owner of the team is tweeting out that the guy who wrote this is naive. I'm beginning to wonder who's the naive one here. Is right. is is he is honestly and Bob Young is well regarded and everyone likes Bob Young. But is he being naive about what's going on in his own organization? Well, I mean, I could just name one example. The Art Briles things was the most uh, naive thing I've ever seen in my life. It was the biggest understatement of Thai Cat Nation that I've ever seen in my time of being here in Hamilton and, and covering sports since the time I left Sportsnet. That, that, was, that was the most naive thought that they could, I mean, I use this loosely, and get, getting away with the hiring of him and then, you know, 24 hours having to, you know, basically, you know, turn around and fire him, uh, you know, after the, out, the outcry that not only came from Tiger Cat fans, but Hamilton uh, residents, Hamilton sports fans, and people in southern Ontario as well, too, that were shocked and amazed all over North America that this CFL franchise would even consider bringing someone with that kind of, you know, background, you know, uh, you know and I know it's not a university or a college, but, I mean, it is a professional football team and that, you know, that you would even willing to give a guy like that a quote as, you know, it was used very often as second chance. Well, the other part of the other quote, and it's less egregious because, you know, calling a reporter naive and calling some of your players cowards, I think is problematic. The second tweet or the third tweet, I don't know which one it was, but that says that Kent Austin is arguably the most successful head coach in CFL history. Um, I, I don't even know what Bob is looking at in well, the history. Think, that well, that I, just shows I, a, a I lack think, of understanding. Well, there, no, there, I think there is some truth to that in, in the sense of he had the one year with Saskatchewan and won a great cup. Went away, came away. So basically the first two years of him being here in Hamilton. So basically he went to the great cup three times in his first four seasons as a head coach. So I think that's where, where he's kind of looking at it at. Um, because, I mean, now, if you add the last couple of years, of course, that his win percentage drops tremendously. So I think he, that was his mindset that, you know what, you know, when we brought this guy aboard, we had immediate results. And then on top, you add that, uh, you know, what happened to him in his, you know, in his first year in Saskatchewan after he decided to leave. Do you think then that there really is a risk with this team when you're going to sign free agents, when you're going to talk to players and things like that? If they, are they essentially, because it, it seems pretty, pretty clear based on Bob Young's response that Kent Austin is going to stay here. I mean, that, that's how I read this. It was like he, he rose up to defend him. You don't rise up to defend a guy to a week later say thanks, but no thanks. Right. 
if they keep him without giving really any serious thought to this, do they run or are they doing this at their own risk? You know, buyer beware, but you know, you could be paying for this. Well, again, we'll find out, you know, but I've never even considered Ken Austin not being there. I mean, because the way I look at it, the Bob Young, um, Ken Austin, and Scott Mitchell, you know, sort of triangle, to me, I think that's alive and well. I think they, they all work together. I think they're in, you know, conference with each other on a very, on a daily basis, and they don't do anything without, you know, each other knowing what's going on. So, you know, to me, to think that, you know, Ken Austin was going anywhere, and on top of that, I mean, quite basically, he's under contract. So, yeah, for a few more years, as I recall. Yeah, for, yeah, for a few more years. So, and not, um, not at a little tiny bit of money either. No, no. I mean, and, I mean the Ticats over the years have paid off enough money to people that, hmm. that weren't there, <laughs> that were no longer employed, that they needed to continue to pay. So um, any thought of Ken Austin not being around for next year to me, I, I never even considered. But, you know, but the player thing is, is interesting to me, Scott, is that, you know, uh, now the players I spoke to, because my conversations were probably a little earlier, more so than, than the ones that Drew had. Um, and I say this in the sense of they were more upset when he was the head coach and things that I had heard about him as a head coach and the game planning and the frustration for players and you know, other people not you know, getting playing time, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I had heard a lot of that. Now, Drew updates it more so with, you know, quote, quote, which were obvious, quite honest, uh, honest and uh, recent conversations of, you know what, you know, uh, people not coming back next year if he's around. That, that is the most revealing to me, and that's a real negative spin. Well, it doesn't... It's true. Yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't speak very well. And, I, and look, I mean, the, the, the idea about naive... Um, I don't believe that there is a player probably, maybe there's someone in the league who has this kind of relationship with his owner or with his president, but I don't think too many guys are going to go to the team president or the team owner and say what they honestly, honestly feel when it's, I don't like the general manager. They're, they're, they're just not going to do that. So because Bob Young or Scott Mitchell or someone else has not necessarily heard this, doesn't make it not true. It makes it feasible that someone doesn't believe they want to say that to the person who's in charge, because what does that mean to them? Well, and, and he, you know, let's call a spade a spade here. You know, whoever those players are, and some of them have been named, when sitting down to do the contract, I mean, they're not going to be sitting down with Bob Young to renegotiate their contract. They're not probably going to be sitting around with Scott Mitchell. I mean, he's, those are issues that are going to be handled by Kent Austin. So we're talking about some, you know, as the VP of football operations, um, he's the one that's going to be responsible. And I know that, uh, you know, the general manager in name is, is not really, is Kent in some ways and Eric Tillman, but as the VP of football operations, I would believe that all contract and, and conversations will be going on with the, the player, the agent and Ken Austin. So that, there could be some very uncomfortable conversations that, uh, we, that we'll never really know about, but that may continue. Let's stay with the CFL for a second, but change tack slightly because the playoffs are starting, uh, not involving the Ticats. But Saskatchewan, the Rough Riders, have, 20, have 10 wins and 20 points. Ottawa has six wins and they have a tie as well. So they have 17 points. Is it 17 points? Well, whatever they have. Yeah, they have a tie. They have a tie yeah. Why are the Red Blacks hosting a playoff game against Saskatchewan? <laughs> How does this make any sense at all? They have four more wins. You know what, Scott? I mean, I know exactly where you're going with this. It'll never change. 
But I will say this, and I, I understand why you would believe that this is nonsense and it's craziness, but it is the CFL. It is East versus West. It's a method that they have gone with for years. But I will say this. Thank God the league created the crossover. You know, maybe I guess. A Pardon decade. me. Ottawa has eight wins, not six. I sorry, it was eight wins they've got. So they're but two it's still, behind. It's still less. right? Yes, it's still less. <laughs> it's still less. So even if you're going to have the crossover, though, okay. So we're going to we're going to cling to the two division thing, even though it makes no sense anymore in a country where it's a big country, but it's a small country as well. We now have the internet. We now have ways we can communicate with people. We don't have to send up. That we don't have to send a message on the train that takes three weeks to get to the other side of the country. Uh, we actually know people from Vancouver, and they know people from Halifax. I mean, we're it's not like it's the old days, but we're going to stick to this. Like, it's not like com- communist, the, the Soviet Union? No, it's not like East Germany and West Germany where you don't know anyone on the other side of the wall. So, okay. But the fact is, we're, okay, we're going to cling to the two-division thing. I get it. I get yeah. it. I don't agree with it. I think it makes no sense. I think the top six teams should be in the playoffs, period, but whatever. But if you have the crossover, at the very least, the team that has the better record should get the home game, should it not? Not if they have to cross over. <laughs> Because it's punitive to the, it's punitive because you're in a better division. That's the only thing it is. Right. <laughs> if I'm Saskatchewan, and I'm frankly, if I'm the league, and I could fill the Regina Stadium jam packed full of Green Rider fans. Good point. Good point. Uh, I'm looking now. It's only one year. I understand. And Ottawa will probably come close to selling out or sell out the game. But I'm looking at this going. If I'm Saskatchewan, we had a better year than Ottawa. Why are we on the road? because you're the lower seed in that actual better division. And the sad part about this, and we see this in the NFL, where there are times where the NFC and the AFC take portions of years as the better conference, um, and it becomes a cyclical thing. The problem here, Scott, is I don't think we would be so concerned with this if the CFL's West and East were more balanced. And I say balance in terms of wins and losses. It has been as long as I can remember that the West has been better than the East. I don't. And there's never been an East crossover. Well, there you go, and that's a problem. So there's no there's no balance here in the sense of you know well it's cyclical and that you know every once in a while there's going a team from you know the West is going to get robbed or you know, but it, it it's year after year after year. And I have no idea how in a nine-team league, a West division can always be better than the East. That baffles me. You know what the most amazing part about this is? It seems that, because over the... Over the years, Winnipeg seems to be the team that gets bounced back and forth. If there's eight teams, it moves to the east. If it's a nine, they go back to the west. Regardless of where, if Winnipeg goes to the west, they become good. As soon as they come over to the east, they become bad. It's like there's something at the border of Manitoba and Ontario that sucks the life out of teams. And they don't want to be there. I've heard fans, I've talked to Blue Bomber fans that are much happier even though they sometimes struggle, yep. against, you know, because this is this is the best blue bomber team we've seen in some time. Um, they much rather play the West teams. They like the, they. There's a better rivalry, you know, over the years of them being in the West than the East. You know what's going to be really interesting, Bubba? What's going to be really interesting? You just touched on it. Winnipeg has its best team in a long, long time. There is. It would not be at all shocking if Winnipeg won the Grey Cup this year. If Winnipeg wins the Grey Cup, you know who that makes the longest te- the team with the longest time since their last Grey Cup? 
boy. Tiger Town, obviously. Uh, how much pressure goes on the Ticats then if suddenly Winnipeg, because it's always nice when you're not the team that's been waiting the longest. Well, Winnipeg's worse than us. Winnipeg's been waiting longer than us. You know, and you're, you're, you're right with that, I think, in, in theory. But I feel like there's a lot of pressure on the Ticats right now. Oh, of course there is. Uh, you know, like uh, there is, but it'll I, get more. It'll get more. I, 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 and there should be more. I mean, I was at every game this year, and I think every every year before that, and and so on and so on and so forth. But these announced, I mean, I know it drives your colleague Rick Zamperin crazy. These announced sellouts are are crazy. That, that stadium for that Montreal game was half filled. And it was announced as a sellout. They were all standing on the concourse drinking their beer, Bubba. <laughs> they weren't in their seats because they were milling about as happy little Ticat fans. The stadium was full. Right? Like people want to see wins. I get enough already. Yes. They, no, I, think, they, I think that's their, their mindset. And even when I talk to, to the, the deepest, the most hardcore Ticat fans, they're losing patience. You know what? Not only is it... 18 years, I believe. Is it 18 years? 18 seasons this yeah, year since they last won? Yeah. Uh, but on top of that, we'll talk about this maybe next time. We're still waiting. Where is the Grey Cup that's coming to Hamilton? Every other team gets a new stadium. Every other city gets a new stadium, and the Grey Cup arrives short, in short time after that. Where is We still aren't even hearing about a bid for a Grey Cup. Well, I, I'm not 100% here, so I could get... There may be trouble. stuff could, going on I, in the background. I don't know, but we're not hearing it. I don't know. I could get in trouble for this one, I, and I don't know the exact dimensions or whatever. But can that stadium be retrofitted for a, a Grey Cup? When it was built, that was one of the things that was discussed, that they'd be able to put in temporary seats. So, to answer your question, we got to go here. I'm really late. If it can't... A pox on the house of everybody involved in building that thing. If we built a stadium that you can't even use for a Grey Cup, what was the point? I don't know. Surely they can do it. We haven't heard yet how they can. But if they can't put in the number of seats to do a Grey Cup, everybody who was involved in that from putting a weld on a joint up to the decision maker should all be sent off to Siberia somewhere for hard labor. That would be idiotic. You've already seen speakers falling from the yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. That was just a warm-up. Bubba O'Neill, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for doing it. Uh, great, chat. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. When I was driving into work this morning, I could not help but notice that in my neighborhood, I somehow looked up and I noticed that the roofs of the houses in my neighborhood were all white, covered with frost. It's true. So this becomes, I would think, time when people start getting a little chilly, when they've got to warm up their car, there's a little frost on the window, and they think, you know what, I think it's time to start considering if I'm going to go away for the winter. I want to get away. I want to have a break somewhere. But where do you go this year? Normally, it's pretty easy. But in the wake of Hurricane Irma and Hurricane Maria and a bunch of other things, where a number of the more popular Caribbean destinations were really hammered, where do you go? What do you do? Shauna Curtin Weatherill is the owner of Expedia Cruise Ship Center in Waterdown. Uh, we love having her on here. Shauna, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. First of all, am I correct that this would be about the time of year when people would start actually waking up and saying, I think it's time to start looking? You're correct. I, I'm not surprised, but uh, I just I wondered if people were actually more forward-thinking and planning than that, or if it's just, oh, poop, I'm cold now, let's start planning. <laughs> yeah, Canadians, as soon as it gets a little bit of frost, we start booking things really quickly. Well, that's you know, that's good for you guys. 
Yes, yes, very much so. When people do start to book, when they come in, do people generally know what they want to do when they walk in to see you, or do they just, well, what do they say when they come in? Um, not very often. Not everyone want, knows where they want to go. A lot of people just come in and say, I want to go somewhere warm, um, and I need to get away. Some are really fast. Some are really long thinkers that like to plan. So those are more your river cruises and your exotic mm. destinations. But Caribbean destinations, it's usually just get me somewhere warm. And what is generally the most important or one of the most important things to the request? Do they have a specific destination or is it I want to do it cheap or is it something? Um, what would drive their, when you start giving them ideas, what motivates them? Beach and food. All right. I'm, we have yeah. a lot of foodies. So people want to go places where there's good food and they want a nice beach. Um, that's usually top priority. Cheap usually isn't cheap. And when someone does come in and say they want cheap, everybody's cheap is different. And sometimes a, a cheap holiday can be a very expensive mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Have you ever done one of those? No. <laughs> you've, you've, you've never had, you've never gone on one of those trips. I'll take a last minute thing and just see, you know, it's really, and you never stumbled in. A friend of ours did that. And we've heard this story from them a number of times. They got into a hotel and this is actually pretty gross. I hope no one's actually eating or drinking, but when he took off his shoes in the hotel room, they had like a deep shag carpet and it was oh. just squishing between his toes and he had no idea what it was that was, no. yeah, no, that, that, that no. would be a bad idea. You know, if somebody comes in and they have a budget, we will work with it, but we'll certainly let them know what they're walking into. I have gone to between three-star and five-star in Cuba. I love Cuba for the beaches, and that's what I'm going for. I'm not going for food. I'm going for the beaches. And I know if I go to a three-star, what I'm walking into. And we let clients know, you know, fully honestly, this is what you're going to, but this is within your budget. And as long as they know they're walking into a five-star and have paid for a three-star, it's okay. Is the cost, of, does the cost of travel vary much from year to year? Yes. Right now we've seen, it varies with the dollar. With the, of uh, course, sure, yeah. dollar going up and down. And it varies as well when we have um, disasters like the hurricane or when we have the Zika virus. And there's so many things that affect the travel industry. So right now when we have um, the hurricanes that have just hit, we're seeing prices go higher in areas that have not been affected because now they're prime. Sure. Okay. Well, let's get to that because... I was looking through this today before I came on, uh, and the list is long. Puerto Rico, St. Martin, Barbuda, British Virgin Islands, Dominica, Cuba, Turks and Caicos, St. Thomas, St. John, St. Bart's, St. Croix, St. Kitts, mm-hmm. a number of other places were all hit very, very hard. Those are a lot, not all, but those are a lot of the popular destinations people go to in the Caribbean. Yes. So just, so officially the hurricane season is June 1st to November 30th. It's a long season. But technically, when it hits and it's busiest is mid-August to mid-September, and it usually hits the Eastern Caribbean. The Caribbean region is huge. It's like 32 countries and like 1 million square miles. Of that, only 70%, 70% was not affected. So when people say, oh, my God, the Caribbean's wiped out, huh. it's not. Right now, we have heard, because we get updates all the time from Chamber of Commerce from the different islands, um, we might be having going into the cruise ports November 11th and December 10th. Hmm. So, um, so, but most of those places, well, not most, a number of those places that were hit particularly badly, St. Martin being one of them, those, those places the worst, yeah. could not be ready yet for tourists. No. So what we have, as of October 28th, we had someone in Old San Juan. Um, they sent a video to us holding up a Starbucks. They showed some of the vegetation down. There's some power up. The forts aren't up and running. But they're, they're coming back as, as quickly as they can. The ships are going in out, um, disembarking and embarking successfully. The airport is open, and the Red Cross is in port, the Red Cross ship. 
Um, right now, Barbuda, it has 1,600 residents, and they're all in Antigua. We just had clients come back from Antigua that said, the, you know, there they're welcoming. They're so glad to see that they have some tourism there. They're taking care of everyone from Barbuda. Barbuda will not be up and running for a very long time, but it's not really a destination that a lot of people go to. No. They go to Antigua. Um, a lot of the Eastern Caribbean has not been cleared, but we've got about we've got a lot of areas that are up and running. St. Thomas and San Martin were probably the worst, um, but we're looking at mid-November to January kind of going in. We might be able to have it as a cruise port to disembark and embark. Like smaller ships such as Windstar would leave from San Martin, but it would not be your port destination. It, it almost sounds coarse to ask this question because we know that, I mean, there were a lot of people who were seriously affected and we don't want to yeah. just look to take advantage of their horror. That's not what this is. But as coarse as it is, are there deals if you are willing to go there? Are they trying to lure people back? Some of those, maybe not St. Martin yet, but some of those places, if you're willing to mm-hmm. settle for something that may, there may still be some trees down or may still be a few things. Can you find a good deal to go to those places? We're not seeing a whole lot of deals come up. And what we're saying to people is, again, it could be an expensive mistake to go to a resort that says, yes, we're up and and running, because up and running means they have the amenities, they have the power, they have water, um, they have food supply. But is there a beach? Is there construction next door? Is there, what are you walking into? So we're warning people that are saying, you know, we want to go here just because it might be really cheap to go. What are you walking into? You could be being in a disaster zone and have construction going on next door to you. So we're trying to guide people to go, and, and yes, it might be a little bit more, but it's value for your money, and that's, that's what you want to do. You want to go somewhere and know that I paid this much, which was maybe $500 more than I wanted to, but I enjoyed my week off instead of my week's vacation was wasted because all I heard was jackhammers and cranes, and <laughs> you know, you don't want to do that on a week's holidays. Well, so you mentioned a few moments ago, though, that some of the other places that maybe, uh, I mean, there are places like Jamaica that were not really touched. I mean, there are yeah. places that are big destinations that avoided, but some of these other less well-known. Um, Granada. A perfect example. Are the prices up for that because they know now they are one of the places people will be looking? Not really, because those islands like Aruba, um, Granada, um, the Prickly Pear, the Virgin Gordas, all those kind of things... Those prices are typically higher anyway. Barbados, they're higher than, let's say, Dominican Republic or Mexico or even Jamaica. Jamaica's one of the higher ones of those islands. But the islands that are are really good right now, um, they're usually higher anyway. St. Vincent and the Grenadines, St. Lucia, those are higher islands priced anyway. So Why? Why? Is it just less rooms? or is um, it... They're a little more untouched. They're not as commercialized. Um, so they tend to, and they're smaller islands, so it's a little more intimate to go to these islands, but because they're untouched, people like that, because you're not walking into, you know, United States and in Mexico kind of thing. You're not seeing Kentucky Fried Chicken on the corner because it's it's not there. When you have... there's still, you know, South America and Costa Rica, those islands, you can still go lower there and go to those islands and prices are still good. When you have people who are repeat customers with you, do do many people, do most people come in and want the same thing year after year? Or is this actually, do people ask for something different and is this an opportunity then for them to say, you know what, all right, so you've done St. Martin, blah, blah, blah. Let's try one of these little ones you've never considered before. Yes, for us, this is actually great because we can 
educate people on some of the different islands that are out there and introduce them to places they've never been before because people get comfortable. They like going to the same resort and the same island because they know it. So they know what they're spending their money on and they know what to expect. This way we can, you know, guide them into something else that could be exciting and it becomes a whole new adventure for them. And that's, that's a great way to spend your holiday is, is seeing other parts of the world. So for us, it's great. And for clients, it's been, you know, successful as far as getting them into other places, other destinations, and coming back and saying, wow, I didn't even know that existed. I thought where I went in Mexico all the time was the best. And now, now it's this place. So <laughs> it's, it's good for us. You mentioned cruise ports. Most of the time when there's storms or when there's things, they just simply affect their ports of call. They, that's the beauty of being on a ship, I suppose, that if something yeah. is not open, you go somewhere else. That's right. Um, but do people book cruises? Do many people book cruises based on the ports or do they just want to go somewhere warm? And is it, are they built, put it this way, are they booking the ship for the ship or are they booking it for where it's going most of the time? Uh, I would say that's probably almost split down the middle. Some people book kind of the larger ships that have all the amenities on board because the ship is their destination and the ports are just part of it. Um, they like the rock climbing walls. They like all the different venues, the shows, the Broadway, everything that's on a ship. Other people book a smaller ship because they like the intimacy of it and they're going for the destination. And so they're immersing themselves in the destinations that they go to, not so much the ship. So the ship may not have shows, it may not have as many restaurants, they're going for the destination. So when people come in, um, it's very split where they either want the newest, biggest ship or they want the islands. They want the destination. Let me ask you about that when you talk about the newest, biggest ship, because every year it seems there are crazy, new, enormous... Yeah, they're getting bigger and bigger, and they're competing. So Royal Caribbean is now bringing out the Symphony of the Seas, which is bigger than the Harmony of the Seas, which is 7,000 capacity with... um, 7,000? It's 7,000 with guests and with crew. So it's 5,700 passengers total, and the Symphony of the Seas is coming out. Um, I'm going to be on the inaugural... And it's bigger. Bigger than bigger that? And, and it has everything. It has everything you can think of on it. There's, there's nothing, and every generation can enjoy it. Whereas, like I said, the smaller ships, I was just on a small ship that had 530 passengers, three restaurants, no rock walls, one pool, no hot tubs, and it was lovely. I'm just looking up right now as we're talking. I'm trying to find out what the population of Morocco is. I think that ship might be bigger than that entire country. Yes. Uh, that is that yep. is an enormous... Uh, here's what I never understand. If they keep bringing out these enormous ships and they've got to have, well, let's say 7,000, but that's what, 5,000 um, guests. Yes, yeah. There are so many thousands upon thousands of staterooms of ships that are sailing in the Caribbean every single week. How can they possibly continue to fill these? They do, and that's I, that even amazes me, but we have a lot more generational travel now. We have younger grandparents, we have younger parents, we have people traveling with great-grandparents, so we have generations traveling together. We have people that hold reunions that they used to hold them at someone's backyard now holding them on ships. We have running teams going. We have um, conferences on ships, so... There's so many different things, and they fill all the staterooms. And because now we have, you know, staterooms that can hold a family of four or five, they're they're being filled. Not very often when we get close to sale date, if somebody comes in and says, I'm looking to go here, do we say, okay, here's your availability? And it's very limited usually. They also have theme cruises and stuff, and that, that brings up, I, I don't know if this is true. I'm only going by the story they told, but I know of a, a couple who told me one time that they went to book at a particular time, and it was only on their third call 
that the person from the cruise line informed them that that was actually a charter for a nude cruise, which oh. would have been an interesting day to show up and uh, discover you're the only one on there who wasn't I interested. But, well, <laughs> light, yeah, travel light. That's uh, but it does seem that there must be a limit at some point to how many people they can actually put on these shows. Uh, maybe there isn't. Maybe they can just keep pumping them out, but it's, uh, it, it is astounding to me that they can do that. Yeah, and the larger ships um, can't get into some of the smaller ports. Right. So with the Caribbean now, some of the areas that are affected, some of the smaller ships, although they're a little more costly, can get into those smaller areas that um, the large cruise ships can't, or you have to be tendered in. These ones actually just anchor and you're tendered into the island. So it's for those people that have said, I've seen the Caribbean, I've done that, been there, um, they still haven't because the Caribbean is so big and there's so many areas to discover. Last thing, we only have a minute or so left here, but with the stuff, I mean, if if you're going to look at the hurricane damage and say, you know what, the places that I really do like in the Caribbean were damaged or maybe damaged, or I'm not really sure about this year, mm-hmm. what about doing something completely off the off the grid from normal and, you know, something like a, something a lot of people have always dreamed about doing and going to like Tahiti or Hawaii or something? I mean, is that prohibitively we just got expensive? Back from Tahiti. You did? <laughs> That's where I just got back from. And it's, and it's not the Caribbean. It's the most beautiful, exquisite place you'll ever be. And, um, and that's what we did. We've, we love the Caribbean, and we went to Tahiti and Bora Bora and Morea. And we have other people that are saying, you know what, let's put us on a trail somewhere. Let's do Machu Picchu. People are now choosing exotics because the Caribbean is maybe not what they can do right now. Maybe that favorite island is gone. But is it prohibitively expensive? Relative, I mean, relative, if you were going to go on a, if you're typically going on a Caribbean vacation or a cruise or something, is it monstrously more expensive to do that? Um, yes, I, I would say it is. It's, you're not going for the same amount that you'd be going on a Caribbean to Western Caribbean or Eastern of course. Caribbean. You're paying a little bit more, but when you come back, there's, there's never a time that you're going to say that wasn't worth it. It was, it was value for your money and it was a, a memory that you can't get rid of. It's just amazing. I've always wanted to do one of those huts over the uh, over the we water. Did that. It was you did that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Making but me jealous. Uh, just, I know we only have a second. I just wanted to touch on one thing. When people are listening about traveling, because of these hurricanes, what this has opened up people's eyes to as well is travel protection. And as a travel agency, we sell prop travel protection with Manulife. Now people have it on their credit cards. They have it through work. And what we typically advise is because a lot of people don't know what they have is call your credit card company or call your bank or wherever you have your insurance if you're not purchasing it from your travel agent and ask, what am I not covered for? Um, Because they'll give you a whole list of things that you are covered for. And there were some people that were stuck in the Caribbean thinking that they were covered or thinking that they had um, trip interruption to get them home and they didn't. So it's very important to look into that as well. And these hurricanes have opened up people where they now start thinking, you know what, book my trip, book my insurance, because if a warning comes out, I have 100% coverage. You can't book your insurance once you hear there's a, a, a hurricane on its way. Yeah, that is uh, that is true. Uh, Shauna Curtin-Weatherill, owner of Expedia Cruise Ship Center in Waterdown. Appreciate the help. If you need some help, if you want to go traveling, give Shauna a call. Uh, thanks for the time tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Um, ben, you ever been to Tahiti? No, but that sounds amazing. I've been there once, but I didn't get to enjoy it because I had spent the summer uh, in the jungle in Papua New Guinea doing volunteer work. Papua New Guinea is an island just above Australia, and we were way up the Sepik River doing volunteer work, building building rudimentary structures with corrugated iron roofs that ran into eaves troughs that ran into a pipe that went down a hill into a 2,000-gallon water tank. So when it rained, people there got fresh water. 
And on the way home, we stopped for a week in Tahiti for a vacation right on the island of Morea, which you land in Papaete, and then you take a ferry across. And it was looking like it might be the most beautiful place I'd ever seen in my life. And on the ferry ride, the malaria kicked in. And I spent a week in a tent cooking from the inside out. I had got there as a six foot four, six foot five, 175 pound guy. I was already skinny as a rail. And when I was done that week, I was 150 pounds plus. And I really did not get to enjoy Tahiti. So that's my long way of saying I'm very envious of Shauna that she's just been there. And on my bucket list, I don't really have much of a bucket list, but Tahiti, not with malaria, is high on that list. I advise you to, from what I saw of Tahiti, I would give the big thumbs up and I would give the big thumbs down to malaria. Do not get malaria if you can at all avoid it. Really not a high point in the experience meter of life. Really, really not fun. But we're still here. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.